0: From the EPR Creations studio, this is Jason Staples, bringing you Unconquered with Doc Staples. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by my newest advertising partner. Very proud to announce this Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky and expanding. If you've been listening to me the last 11 years, you know I have not taken just any advertisers. I only accept the ones I really believe in, and Justin is one of the best in the mortgage loan space. If you're looking to buy a house in Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, or Kentucky, Shop around, and as a part of that shopping around, give Justin a call. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast with Doc Staples. You'll be glad you did. Information's in the show notes. Welcome back. This is the mailbag episode we're going to do before doing our preview episode tomorrow. or releasing it tomorrow, I should say. And uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and get to some... There was a lot of stuff that came in over the bye week. I'm going to try to 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 do uh, some justice to some of this stuff. So, um, so yeah, first from uh, Brian Leininger. Talking to friends that have watched the Clemson game many times, it seems that with us going to this 12 personnel, one back, uh, too tight, and look, it's clogging the middle of the field. I think we need to go to more 11 personnel with Winston Wright and Destin Hill in the slot. What do you think about this 12 personnel clogging the middle of the field? Do you think we should go more to 11 personnel, and will it open up the field more? Uh, well, so I have addressed that a little bit on uh, the last couple episodes, but so on, on the one hand, yes, I do think Florida State probably should go to a little bit more 11 personnel simply because they need to find ways of getting a little bit more consistency in the short to intermediate passing game than the, what they've managed to get so far. Now, they might be able to do that with the with the 12 personnel with just a little bit of a different approach. But I think some of the things that they were able to do last year in terms of using some of the some of the RPO game and, and all of that with that slot receiver may be advisable. Uh, and you do have some dynamic playmakers, uh, particularly Destin Hill, uh, that you may want to get in, in some one-on-ones in situations that, that might warrant it. On the flip side, though, I mean, you can do... 11 type personnel looks with Jaheim Bell outside. And it's not a whole lot different because of how dynamic an athlete he is. So it's a little tricky um, because you could, you could go, you could stick with 12 personnel and still go with, you know, four wide looks. Both of the tight ends you've been playing the most have the athleticism to do that. Now, in terms of clogging the middle of the field, In the passing game, I don't think that's as much of a factor because what you're normally going to get in response to a 12 personnel type thing is you're going to get a lot of middle of the field closed. So you're going to get a single high safety and you're going to get one on ones on the outside as teams try to match up with the size on the interior so that they can stop the run. Clemson brought eight guys in the box a bunch on Saturday. Well, not this last Saturday, but in that game. And... That's kind of what you want them to do, because if you can get eight guys in the box and you get one-on-ones with Johnny and Keon, you feel really good about those guys winning those matchups more often than not. It just means that, John, that, that those guys are going to have to actually create the separation that you expect them to, and, and, and Travis is going to have to make the throw, make an accurate throw in those contexts. And I do think they may need to be a little bit more varied in terms of some of the stuff that they do out of that. Instead of just defaulting to a vertical, which then turns into a back shoulder or, you know, a jump ball type thing as often as not, you know, maybe a few more skinny posts, uh, you know, things like that, that give you the chance to take advantage of of some of the coverage looks that you're going to get with one on ones there. Uh, and, And again, doing some more glance route type stuff with some RPOs where you're you're asking those safeties and those backers who are coming up in that eight man look to step down against the run and then you hit it behind him. Problem is if you haven't been able to block it well enough or, you know, read your blocks well enough to run it effectively, then they may line up in that eight man, but they're not triggering quite as quickly because they don't, they don't believe you're going to run it on them quite as well. So a lot of this is all put together, but the, the place where it does clog the middle a little more is just in terms of the running game. When you are going with, two extra guys in the box you're you know say two h backs or one on on inline tight end and one h back you're bringing two more guys into the box usually sometimes three more that the defense will will bring down to match that which means you've got more complexity and more guys to handle in the in, in terms of the uh run blocking stuff than you would have otherwise so if you feel So it's actually less the running game that that or it's less the passing game that would have me thinking about going to more spread type formations than it would be the struggles in the running game that would have me thinking about that. So is it possible that by going to more 11 personnel and spreading the field a little bit more, you're going to get a little bit lighter box it looks and you're going to be able to sort that a little bit better up front and you're going to have friendlier looks against the run so that you can get your running game going. So it's sort of the, the, the paradox of you, you, uh, you go with big personnel and you line it up more tightly so that you can take advantage of the uh, exceptional wide receivers you have out wide. So you go, you try to concentrate people into the box so that you have those one-on-ones outside or do you try to spread it out and then kind of take away from some of those one-on-ones outside where you have your biggest mismatches in order to get your run game kick-started against lighter boxes. And I think they may need to go with a, you know, interesting thing is they may need to do this sort of the counterintuitive way, which is tighten up, get more, more guys in the box when you're going to throw the football and then start spreading more when you're planning to run it. Uh, now you have to, it's again, it's a game theory thing. You have to kind of figure out once they're starting to figure out your tendency, you have to, you have to change that up and start adding wrinkles, but that may be the sort of thing you need to do. You may need to, uh, to spread it a little bit, to be able to run it a little bit better. Cause they did run it better last year when they were spreading it. So, you know, maybe that's a factor. All right. Next question also from Brian. Why does it take defensive coordinator Adam Fuller a half to adjust to what the offense is doing? He should have been blitzing like that from the fir- in the first half like he did in the second half against Clemson. Um, yeah. <sighs> Honestly, I don't know. And the frustrating part for me isn't just that it took them basically a half, a full half to make that that shift, but that should have been the plan in the first quarter. Because you knew what Clemson was bringing to the table with wide receivers, and you should know what your corners are bringing to the table. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I think Fuller and and the defensive staff are going to have to figure out that they can lean into the corners as one of the strengths of this defense and start to have a higher pressure strategy from the jump in each game. I think that's something they're going to have to do. But yeah, this is frustrating. And I don't know why it's taking so long because you should not. Those things should already be in the game plan and you should not have to get to halftime before you have that conversation and say, you know, we should probably bring pressure here. It's just it's taken too long. Oh, <sighs> OK. Uh, next question. The man match concept that uh, you mentioned Florida State plays as their base defense is that man match uh, concept popular? Real popular? What other college teams play this? Do the pros play this defense a lot? The answer is yes. This is the this is the base coverage. So it used to be that the base coverage that everybody installed on day one was just uh, was just your standard country cover three. So you're gonna have everybody. Line up. You're going to have a free safety in the middle of the field. You're going to have a safety drop down towards the box. He's going to cover the curl flat. You're going to have the two corners out on an island out there. And they're both going to be in a bail uh, responsibility. They each have deep third and they're going to play outside leverage. And that's going to be your base coverage that you're going to work from. That, you know, 30 years ago, that was the base defense everybody ran. As far as what you first installed. And then everything kind of developed from there you, you know, okay, so now we're going to go cover one. So those guys on the edge are going to play tighter and you're still going to have the single safety in the middle and, you know, you're going to do man free and then you're going to install cover two and the, you know, the open field, open, uh, open middle of the field, uh, defenses two and four and all of this, you're going to kind of develop from there. Then pattern matching, uh, as a, as a concept really started to take take hold in the nfl really in the 80s i think it was um i mean this was sabin belichick were really on the forefront of a lot of this uh and so they started having all sorts of principles for matching different route combinations and different looks and all of this and you read through number one to number two and then read through number two to number three and you know you're switching off and match up zone and you're doing all this because let's say you go man you go uh man-free, where you're playing inside leverage and you're just chasing that man wherever he goes. Well, now you have a team that decides to condense you a little bit and run mesh, where you have a receiver from each side is going to run a shallow cross and they're going to run it so tight that they actually slap hands as they go by. And you're just trying to collision. You're trying to create traffic so that whoever's chasing in man coverage just winds up getting picked and now you've got a guy running wide open. That's just one example. You got all sorts of, you know, rub and pick and different different uh, different things to to take away what you do when you go tight man inside leverage in particular. So the development of this was to match up zone it. So essentially what you do is it's it's zone until the offense declares what they're doing and then it turns into man-to-man. So okay, the offense is going to run a shallow well that's an automatic as soon as he releases inside like that that's an automatic in and in call and you push that to the next guy over who then pushes that to the next guy over and it just bumps over and now you just pick up it's like switching in basketball you just pick up the guy that comes into your zone and now he's your man and you play that like it's man to man from there and essentially this is the way modern defense works and if you've been listening to this show for the full 11 years I've been doing it. This is one of the things I talked about when, when they first hired Jeremy Pruitt, that what they're trying to do, what Jimbo Fisher was actually really trying to do was to push more into a, at the time, the emphasis on more middle of the field, closed match coverages. And they ran a lot more pattern matching at the time. Uh, and that's, and that was one of the things that actually that 2013 defense did so well. And one of the things that, uh, you know, I talked about with Jimbo Fisher at the time is that in order to run match coverage as well, you actually have to have good backers. You have to have really good backers because they have to be able to handle all that stuff that's happening as guys are swapping off and they have to be able to to not just drop to specific spaces, but they've got to close down some stuff. And if you don't have that, you're going to have some more trouble. Uh, but in the the time since that became more of the way to start covering things, I mean, by... 2010 or so, most teams in, in college football were running some version. There there were at least some match principles in how people were running their zones. Uh, so, you know, you're not getting true man or true zone as often as you're getting some sort of matchup, you know, man-match kind of uh, uh, concept, especially among better teams. But with the advent of all the RPO stuff and especially all the zone read stuff, you started getting more plus one running game and basically defenses had to adjust to that to figure out how to handle the combination of of quarterback run game and then some of the RPO stuff that puts your puts your backers and others in conflict so if you're going to have if you're going to match coverage and your your coverage player for this particular match is resp- also responsible for a run fit it gets real hard when <laughs> You're doing that and they're RPOing you. So they're going to just make that guy wrong all the time. So, and that got especially hard when teams are playing more and more middle of the field closed, you know, single high match stuff. So one of the answers to that was to run what's called cover seven, which is match quarters. Uh, So cover four is traditionally, that's just a, a more, you know, that's true quarters where you're kind of just playing deep over the top. Match quarters is quarters with all of the the various read and match and uh man principles baked into it. And depending on how the offense lines up, you might have five different techniques between the corner and the safety on one side, and then another seven different techniques that and checks. That might be happening on the other side. So this side is a match match concept. This side is a read concept. Over here they're doing mix. Over here there's any number of things that 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 you can do in terms of iterating off of it. And because it's a, a middle of the field open at the snap concept, it's super flexible. You can you can start in that look. One of the reasons the defensive coordinators like it so much is you can start in that look. And if they want to run the football to the right side, then you can have one, the safety on that side, be the force safety, be a, be a secondary run support as though he were playing in the box to start with, since he's starting usually at about nine yards, eight yards on, on, on quarters. So he can actually come down and essentially be a plus one in the box. But if they run to the other side, the other safety becomes the plus one. Or sometimes you have the backside safety be the plus one. You, know, you, can, you can do this in all sorts of different ways, and that makes it very popular because no matter what the offense does, you've got a variety of different checks and, and different match schemes that are going to be able to, to work and respond to that quickly, and players learn this and can play fast. And then the other thing is because you're starting in cover seven base, it's also something that you can easily rotate out of. So you're cover seven base, and all of a sudden, because you're starting with the safety a little closer to the line of scrimmage on both sides, you can bl- you can blitz that safety. That safety can step up and become a sky safety or a uh, uh, curl flat type player. And you can have the other safety just drop to the middle of the field, and all of a sudden you're rotating to a totally different coverage from the same pre-snap look. So this really in, I'd say, 20... I don't know, 2014, 2015, 2016, somewhere in there, I I started noticing that this was becoming much more the default coverage that everybody starts with. And now, if you look at what Nick Saban installs, if you look at Saban's defensive playbook, which I have, if you look at Saban's defensive playbook, the first and default coverage that they work is cover seven. It's what Florida State's base coverage is too. Same thing for Kirby Smart at Georgia. Same thing for... Uh, What they're running at Florida, same thing for basically every major defensive coordinator in the modern game is going to have cover seven as a default coverage, as the default coverage, just because it's so flexible and it has some things, some answers built in for the quarterback run game because you really have a plus one half on each side in terms of the safeties. Quarterback run game, some of the RPO stuff, you you match on some of that. I went to a clinic back probably seven, eight, seven eight years ago with Mark D'Antonio, where he talked about how quarters type coverage family, uh, really the, the benefit of it is, it is that it already has baked in answers to some of the quarterback run game and RPO stuff. So everybody started running that as as the default. So yeah, it's very, very popular. Basically every other college team is going to play it at some level and it, and it is a common coverage at the pro ranks. Although in the pros, I think you get more coverage variation in general and some of the rules in terms of, uh, of what you're allowed to do in coverage, uh, with hands on receivers and all of that affects some of that at the, at the pro level, but, but yeah, it's really popular. Okay. Next question. Uh, does Florida state play any true man where you follow your guy all over the field? Yeah, they do. They do some. Uh, but not nobody really does that as much now as they used to. Florida State also does some things, and I'm the, I'm blanking on the name of the of the particular check or adjustment that you have on that, where you'll play the the regular defense and it's like a box in one where you might have the slot corner or the money player in true man against in a, a against a slot receiver or a tight end or somebody where that guy's gonna get chased everywhere. But everybody else is playing a matchup zone, you know, and, and we've seen Florida State do some of that this year with uh, mostly with with 20 with uh, AZ Thomas in the role of the uh, of the man to man the box and one type player, the and one he's he's that guy usually. So, yeah, they do do that. They do do that some. But the thing is, if you do that a whole lot, you make yourself very vulnerable to a lot of the rubs and and uh, and different things that so many offenses just have as you know default answers for that you play that too much and you play it predictably and you're going to get rub routes all the time on you, which is why I'm a firm believer in match concepts, at least even, even if you're playing true man, I'm a firm believer in match concepts in terms of doing, you know, true banjo type stuff. Banjo is where if the outside receiver releases inside, then, you know, the outside corner is going to switch responsibilities with the inside guy when the inside guy comes out. You have to do that stuff in today's game or you're just going to get picked and rubbed to death. All right. Next question. Is KJ Bolden a safety in the Florida State system? A strong safety and then you can play him in the nickel like LaMarcus Joyner. Bolden is more like a Jalen Ramsey than Derwin James, right? So I think Bolden is a corner in Florida State system. And yes, I do think he's more like a Jalen Ramsey than a Derwin James. Uh, I think Bolden is an elite athlete. I'm talking about you know, top end acceleration and all of that. And he has the kind of length that Florida state loves in their corners. Now I think Bolden can play all five positions in the secondary. So really as a freshman, I would want him. He's a guy that I think you can play potentially day one as a starter, as a freshman. I mean, in that sense, like a Jalen Ramsey or a Derwin James, he's that kind of player. And what you do is you find where, he's going to let you put your best 11 on the field. That might be a corner because at corner, you've got less thinking to do than at safety generally, but it might be at the nickel. I mean, you could put him in the nickel and, and potentially let him, let him do some stuff there. I think as a year one player, you put him, you put him out there, maybe at a field corner position and just let him go to work and let him, let him learn on the fly. But I think he's in, I think he's as good a, re, a corner recruit as Florida state has had since Jalen Ramsey. And I think he is a corner. Uh, I, 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 think, I think he starts there. I think he probably finishes his career there. Um, only way that you end up playing him at safety is if you have another couple guys on your roster who are clearly corners and can't play safety and you wind up having a weakness at safety where those guys need to be out there at corner. They're going to be much closer to, to Bolden's level at corner and the safety is just going to be a big drop-off otherwise. And then you may slot him in there. But to me, he is a, he's a corner. Uh, in in what Florida State wants to do, I think he's I think he's special. All right, next question. This one's from Chris Martinez. <laughs> I I put these together. I sort of collected them as they were coming in, and I didn't realize that some of these are uh, are are carrying over. Why is Coach Fuller so passive? He needs to be more aggressive, like he was with uh, with Clemson in the second half. Yep, I agree, Chris. I agree. I really agree. <laughs> Oh, next question. What are your thoughts of Cam Davis for next year? The running back? Will he be the number two back next year? How good is he? It's a hard thing to tell with high school running backs. Exactly. I think he's, uh, I think he's really good. I'm not sure he's good enough to be the number two next year. I'm I'm curious to see which guys are, are back next year. But if I had to guess next year, it's going to be tough to, to crack the top two because I think Hill should be. One of the two, and then I think they're gonna they're gonna find ways for uh, Keziah Holmes to probably be one of the two next year as well, and you know that that puts Cam Davis potentially in the three slot. Of course, you don't know. You know, maybe uh, maybe Toafili's back too, so that puts Davis maybe in the four slot. But I think as a sophomore, Davis is probably the number one or two back. I, I think he's he's really good, and then one of the things that you really like about him is he's the physical between the tackles kind of runner with natural vision, who's going to be able to get you what's there, play in, play out, and potentially more. So uh, I think he's going to be one of those guys that you want to have as one of your two in the rotation, maybe with a with a little bit uh, faster back as the second one. But I think he's uh, he's going to be a terrific thunder in what norvell likes to do a thunder combined with with a lightning type player he's gonna be really good but to me ideally you have your your running backs really start to break out as sophomores so you know let them learn a little bit as freshmen let them be you know kick return special teams guys and then as sophomores let them break out i I think that's that's kind of your ideal uh ideal spacing for that sort of thing okay next question um from what you've observed so far, uh, what uh, do, who do you think we have asked to do things that physically they're not capable of doing? Boy, that's a really good question. Um, first one that comes to mind is, I think Kevin Knowles is a guy that at safety, ultimately he's just not equipped to be the kind of tackler and finisher that you really need at that spot. And he's playing there of necessity right now, but I, I think they would have been better off maybe having somebody else ready to go at that spot. And he's, you know, he's given it what he's got, but I think that's a tough ask for him in terms of asking him to do some things that he doesn't do as well. Uh, I think Byers also is another one that, in terms of some of the one-on-one stuff in pass pro and some of the things they're asking him to do in in, uh, in the run game, he hasn't looked quite comfortable with uh, or, or ready for physically. Uh, cause I, I think, I think Byers really is closer. I think he's more equipped to be a really good guard. I think he's an NFL guard. Uh, but I think as a, as a tackle, I mean, coming into the year, I said, as a tackle, I thought he was best suited as a backup, as a guy that would play inside and then we'd slide out if you needed, but they've needed because Robert Scott has not been healthy. And, uh, I think Washington is a guy that, if Washington's not actually playing center, I think he's the guy that probably isn't as limited in in some of those things on the, on the edge at tackle to be able to do some of what they want there. Um, I also think there've been some times where uh, with Casey Roddick, he hasn't looked super comfortable uh, as a puller and, you know, he's been a little slow pulling on that. And that's been a, that's been a factor for that. I mean, that's where honestly, you know, if you slide Jeremiah buyers inside and you, you can get him, if he's comfortable on the left side, then you get buyers in there and maybe Washington and certainly either Harris or Scott, if, if Scott gets back to the point where he's comfortable being out there and he's ready to play, that may be your best bet because then buyers can do some of the things that I think Roddick is a, has been a little bit less uh, uh, comfortable with on that front. Um, beyond that, Let's see. Um I think by and large the rest of the of the the team has been asked to do things they do pretty well. Uh I don't think they've been asking too much of most of the of the rest, but those have been guys that I think I've identified as maybe not doing certain things as uh, to uh they're being asked to do certain things that are a little bit much for them. One other I think actually I've I've mentioned before and I'm I'm not going to belabor the point because I think he's a good player. Uh, but I think Lawrence Toafili as a, between the tackles runner, uh, as a true running back, I think there've been some times where they've asked him to do some things that he's just not as equipped to do as maybe some of the other guys on the roster. So, um, yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, that was, uh, who is that from James Reeves? Uh, thanks for that. Okay. Next question is from Joe. Joe asks, uh, does this team give you 2012 vibes? That team is one-dimensional aside from EJ running when he could. And this feels exactly the same way. Zero run game will get FSU beat eventually, M- IMO. Uh, yeah. um, There are some similarities. But I thought that 2012 team was was pretty good running the football until Chris Thompson went down. And when Thompson went down, that 2012 team t- changed a good bit. And I thought EJ Manuel was more hesitant to run the football in 2012, which I think is a closer uh, parallel to what you've seen so far from Jordan Travis, but kind of more understandably because Travis is banged up. Uh, I do think, I do think that EJ manual is probably the closest comp in terms of Florida state quarterbacks to Jordan Travis in a lot of ways, just in terms of some of their limitations as throwers, some of the things they bring to the table as runners. I think Travis is a more dynamic runner than, than EJ was EJ, obviously a bigger player, uh, and I think Travis is a better deep ball thrower than, than uh, EJ was, but in terms of some of the limitations in terms of being able to throw the football, uh, with just absolute precision as a true drop back passer, you know, kind of, uh, Winston style. I think Travis is closer to, to EJ than to say somebody like Jameis. So there are, are some similarities there. Uh, but I don't think the 2012 team had the kind of dynamic playmakers on the outside that that this team does and and I think this team is deeper and, and better overall on the offensive line once they get some things sorted out. So I think this team has a higher ceiling than that 2012 team did, though again, you don't lose uh, Greg Reed, you wind up uh, not losing Chris Thompson. EJ doesn't uh, get banged up against against Florida. And that's that team, you know, goes a lot further than they did. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's some potential comps, uh, certainly the defensive, the, some of the the frustrations on defense for some of the uh, seeming passivity. I think that may be the, the closest comp. Uh, they got much more aggressive in 2013 than they were in 2012, uh, though they started the year more passive after that Georgia, after that uh, Boston College game, they got much more Uh, They found themselves. They found their identity defensively in 2013. Remember, folks forget it It took a couple weeks for a few weeks for that to happen. And then once they did, it was over. Uh, Next question, also from Joe. If you would have told me that Benson would only have 189 yards through four games this year, I would have called you crazy you think they can get the run game going again this year? We're just going to keep seeing Wilson and Coleman getting the loads. This can't be sustainable, right? I know Travis has to get his legs in the game too, but I feel like these slow starts and only throwing it to those guys is going to catch up to them. So, yeah, I do think they're going to have to find ways to be more balanced for sure. Um, and certainly, I, I think everybody's surprised that Benson only has 189 yards through four games. Though I might be among the least surprised people in the country on that, or at least among the Florida State uh Intelligentsia, if I if I may label myself part of that, uh, and that's because if you remember in my season preview, I expressed some concern about Benson as a big game runner against against defenses that can get into run run lanes a little bit better. I think he's one of those guys who, if there's an obvious seam or an obvious hole there, he's going to make the ma- he's going to make the most of it. He's a highlight yards runner, but from what I've seen of him the last couple of years, he's not quite as good of a big game, tough yardage runner uh, as, you know, as some of the other backs, as for example, uh, Trayshawn Ward was. Now, I do think Benson has been a better, I think he's made some improvements in that area this year. I think he's actually a good bit better in this area than he was last year, but there's been less available to him on that stuff than there was last year. So it's just sort of exacerbated, but he's still not elite or he's still not excellent in that area. He's still, still working on it. Still, still learning to play the position in large measure. Uh, so that's not that surprising, but maybe the most surprising thing is that he's not only does he only have 189 yards, the, the whole run offense has been, you know, that, that matches basically the output of the whole run offense proportionally. And despite that, they're still four and that's the surprise. The surprise is they've not been able to run the football anywhere close to expectation as a whole and are still 4-0. Now, is that sustainable? I don't know. I mean against your schedule and against the regular season schedule it might be. I think you're going to need to be able to run it, run it better or at least present a more of a run threat against Miami. And I think ideally you're gonna need it against Duke. But in my view, the the remainder of the schedule really about Miami. I think Miami's the best team left on the schedule, and Miami might be one of the top two teams on this schedule overall. I'm not sure Miami's not better than LSU. And I think they're right in the right in the same area as, as Clemson, at least what I've seen of them so far. And you you, you all know that is not something that I say lightly. <laughs> I mean, for an FCS team, Miami's really played well this year. And they do have some talent on that roster. And they're really good on both sides of the line of scrimmage. They're gonna challenge you in they're gonna challenge your defensive line and they're gonna challenge your offensive line. They're much better in those areas. And they do have a quarterback that can hurt you. So that's a dangerous team. And I, I think Miami actually might be if I were if I were grading out the team's Florida State on Florida State schedule, including the ones they've already beaten. I'm not sure Miami's not the second best team on the schedule. And, you know, they're right in the same tier as the other two. So it might not be sustainable against Miami. Nevertheless, it might be because if, if Keon and Johnny go off and actually do what they do and Jordan has a decent, you know, decent day throwing it may not matter. And against a team like Miami, that's going to challenge you as much up front, Maybe you come out and you come out and do more spread stuff and just, Chuck the ball, you know, 30, 40, 50 or 40 or 50 times. And I think you could line up and potentially throw it 50 times and beat Miami. Now, I'm not sure you can, you know, do what you, I don't think you can do what you've been doing. You can't, I don't think you can beat Miami trying to be balanced and failing to run the football and then winding up in second and third and long and then trying to bail out by going to those guys on the outside. I don't think you can win doing that. That's not sustainable. But I do think you could potentially beat Miami as a one-dimensional passing team, with Keon and Johnny going going off. I do think that's possible. And then you know the remainder. I think Duke's the next best team on the schedule. And you know then you get to Florida, and you know there there and there are some other teams that can challenge you. You know Syracuse is is better than I thought they'd be. They're going to challenge you. There's some teams on this schedule that can hurt you. But I do think uh, I do think that's a, a situation where it's more sustainable than you might think. But it's still not something you want to have, and it's not going to be sustainable if you get to the playoff or, you know, ACC championship game. Okay, this one's from Jonathan. The fact that Florida State's 4-0, with the country's best resume to date, despite the the starters playing at grade C to B-level games, except for one half, can best be explained by blank. And then he gives a fill-in-the-blank he fill here. With some multiple-choice culture, player belief, Talent, high ceiling, coaching, messaging? That's an interesting question. Um, So, yeah, I, I I think a big part of it is culture. And that does come back to a combination of coaching and belief. So culture and player belief, I think, are really sort of one answer. It's the same thing. Player belief is a part of what makes culture good. But I think... If I had to boil it down to one thing, or if I had to boil it down to two things, it would be a combination of quality culture so that the team actually believes. And even when they're not playing well, they, they believe that they're going to win. And they know not only, not only do they believe that they can win, but they believe that they're going to win and play with confidence. And then the other is there is some high level elite game breaking talent on this team. And when you have game breakers and game wreckers who change the scoreboard or prevent the, game, the scoreboard from being changed by just making those splash plays, that's what saves you in those contexts. And this is why I've said for a couple few years now, you can have a really talented roster top to bottom. Uh, an elite roster top to bottom in terms of just overall depth of talent. Let's say let's just for the sake of argument. You could have a team that has a 100% blue chip ratio that is actually at a disadvantage against a team that has say a 30 or 40% blue chip ratio with a couple with, with let's say a handful of true Difference makers. If you're if you're a team with a lot of blue chip depth that of really good players. But without game breakers, without difference makers. You're going to wind up having problems when you play against the team that has those difference makers. So think about it in terms of the NBA. In the NBA, having one top tier player is worth more than having two or three second and third tier players, right? One LeBron James or Steph Curry or Giannis or, uh, you know, one of those guys, one of those guys is worth more than having two guys. So let's say top uh, having one top five player is worth more than having two guys in the like 10 or 11 range so you have two top 10 player or two top top 12 players that are in that like second tier and you got that one top top tier player, the numbers bear it out that having that one top tier player is actually worth more. Why? Because that guy has so much more gravity that it changes everything for everybody else. And if you do try to you know, treat it as though that gravity is not there. You know, your Steph Curry pulls so much of the defense toward him because they're terrified of him going off for for 80 and a quarter if you just leave him open to shoot shoot threes that all of a sudden everybody else has more open shots. Well, okay, then you're going to, then you man him up. Well, then he just makes those plays every time down, right? So that's why one Keon Coleman so radically changes you. Does Florida State beat LSU without Keon Coleman? I'm not sure they do. But they dominated LSU. Well, yeah, they dominated LSU with Keon Coleman making those plays. Similarly, does Florida State end up beating Clemson without without Jared Verse making a few of the plays in the backfield against the running game that he did? I'm not sure they do. Or Josh Farmer making some splash plays. Or Keon Coleman mossing a guy in overtime. The difference in... You think about this. If Clemson had a Keon Coleman, that game's tied after second after the first overtime because they're going to do the same thing Florida State did. All right, line it up. Let's get our one-on-one. All right, let's let him moss that guy. Touchdown. All right, we're going to a second overtime. But Clemson lost that game partly because they didn't have that guy, so they couldn't do that. So they had to try to wrestle for more yardage so the reason florida state is 4-0 the biggest reason florida state is 4-0 despite playing c and b level games across the board for the most part is that they have a plus level talent at a few key positions and those guys have balled out when it's absolutely been necessary And because when you have those guys that are stepping into the huddle and you've got great team culture along with that, you've got reason to be confident when things get tough. Like, well, you know, we might be down by three right now, but we got that guy. He's going to make a play eventually. I just got to keep, I got to keep plugging away. I got to keep doing my job and he's going to do his. That makes a difference. I think, I think it's that. Okay. Final one of this episode (laughs) and that is can you help me understand why FSU only deploys the running the running back on wheel routes and not over the middle of the field similar to how uh Clemson used Shipley actually why doesn't FSU use the middle of the field more overall in the passing game i think some of that is a function of what i talked about on the last episode uh where they're doing a lot of they they're trying to create more heavy boxes or you know when they're when they when you compress down and you've got a large box you got two tight ends or h-back types in the box plus you running back more teams are going to bring an extra guy into the box and so if you're going to do more stuff with that compressed formation the old rule of thumb is that you compress to widen and you widen to comp- you widen to come back inside so when they're going with more compressed formations there's just less space to work with in that short to intermediate area on the inside of the field, because that's where guys are lined up on defense. So you're going to end up running more flat routes. You're going to end up running, you know, more, uh, out, you know, quick outs and, and sale kind type concepts from the, from the, uh, tight end H back types. You're going to be doing more of that stuff out of those formations. I mean, the same type of stuff. This is old school, like I formation stuff. They're just doing it out of, out of shotgun. And, you know, out of the old I formation, you didn't do a whole lot of throwing over the middle of the field. And if you did, you're you're in position where you're potentially going to turn the ball over because you're throwing into a crowd. But they're fine letting a crowd gather there because the more crowded it is in there, the less there's a crowd out with the guys that you're getting one-on-ones with. That's why they're doing it. Now, if you don't start having more consistency from that approach... Then you start to have to spread it and do some other things just so that you can use that interior of the field and, and spread it around a little bit more. And I expect to see them do a little bit more of that. But, I mean, I understand why they're doing it. You, you know, you feel like if you compound it a little bit with the big personnel and force people to match up one-on-one with those freaks outside, how many teams have the personnel to, to take both of those away? I mean, it's got to be less than five. Might not even be that many. Might be two or three. Might have just played one of the two. Or three. So, so yeah, that's that's why. All right, I think that's enough mailbag for today. We'll go ahead and wrap there. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Post and repost episodes on social media and tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com, where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks also to all those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast. I am especially grateful. To those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena, Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. I made this.